0: Hello, my name is Sam Chandra and this is Deep Sky. Each week we go into conversation, helping you to explore and understand the uncharted waters of the intersection of artificial intelligence, aviation and the future of humanity. I am an airline captain, a student of artificial intelligence and your guide to navigating the new world of aviation transformed by artificial intelligence. This week, we have a conversation with Luke Van Dyke. He is the CEO and founder of Dadalian AI, a Zurich-based company that is creating autopilots that will enable manned aircraft to fly autonomously. Luke has a PhD in physics and has spent time working at both Google and SpaceX before starting his company. He sits on the SAE G34 Artificial Intelligence in Aviation Committee and has recently collaborated with EASA on concepts of design assurance for neural networks. Tedalian is currently developing pilot assistance systems with an eye to eventually creating a system that can fully fly and manage an aircraft's mission, including making all of the in-flight judgment calls that a pilot would typically make. Their initial pilot assistance offering consists of three products. Landing assistance for the normal and emergency case, navigation and detect and avoid assistance, focusing on the general aviation market. In order to make these a reality, they are developing advanced image recognition capabilities tailored for the aviation domain. This image recognition is primarily built upon the deep neural network software architecture, which is closely associated with artificial intelligence. In this episode, we explore how this is becoming a reality and what this all means for the aviation industry. This is Deep Sky. Luke, thank you very much for coming on to the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on board. Could you um, first just describe the Dalian? It's an odd name. What is the Dalian, and uh, what are you doing at the Dalian?
1: Yeah, I got I get a lot of questions about the about the name. Um, it means uh, in the manner of Daedalus, who was this uh, Greek uh, inventor of uh, flight. Uh, there's a whole story to that, uh, but in the end, um, he was seen as the prototypical craftful inventor uh, during the Renaissance, which is what I named him after, and not after the first flight accident that happened to his son. Long story. So we got wings for the goddess Athena. Um, so all this is uh, an introduction to uh, we are trying to make autopilots that can actually completely autonomously fly an aircraft legally and safely and certifiably from A to B uh, without human intervention. Um, this is a, a new, uh, whole new level of avionics because um, there's currently no instruments in the cockpit today that can legally and safely uh, fly an aircraft all by by itself. Uh, Whereas Mm -hmm. a human, uh, as you are a pilot yourself, you know this uh, very well. If you fly in visual worlds, uh, almost all your instruments, except maybe indicated airspeed, are optional. And you can uh, safely fly from A to B, take off, cruise and land, um, without any instrument, uh, as long as you have at least one eye open and your hand on the stick. So that's a pretty high uh, bar of reliability. Uh, so what we did when we started out, uh, my co-founder, Anna, who's a helicopter pilot, went over the commercial pilot license skill test for helicopters. And it's a small booklet published by the FAA that uh, describes uh, what it is you're actually supposed to demonstrate during your check flight. And We took that as our um, roadmap for for products. So all these things, it's about 30 things uh, that you do as a human and we wanted to build systems that systematically outperform the human on every measurable dimension. And when we started, actually, our, our catchphrase was that we wanted the the autopilot to pass the exam for you pilots. Oh, right. That's a,
0: that's a great goal to have. Well, it was
1: inspired by, um, at some point, I moved to California uh, to join uh, SpaceX. You have a Swiss driver's license and you go to California, of course, you cannot be trusted. Uh, therefore, you have to take your driver's exam again. And uh, it was a grumpy person at the uh, DMV, which is a proverbial institution in the United States for yes. you know, bureaucracy and unmotivated uh, personnel and bad service. And it looked like a mm-hmm. refugee camp. It was really oh. r- absurd. So a grumpy guy steps in the car and tells me to drive around the block and checks if <laughs> I check my mirror and I look over my shoulder. And there I had it, my uh, United States driver's license, California driver's license. and I thought, okay with the this was 2011 uh, not 2013, and I knew the state of the Google self-driving car. Uh, mm-hmm. And I thought you know if somebody adds voice interaction, the Google self-driving car project in 2011 in the state I knew it to be could pass the California uh, driver's license test. So this was uh, an idea I carried in the back of my mind when I started the daily in uh, in 2016. I thought, okay, you know, we need to build a system that can pass the exam for human pilots, which is clearly Mm -hmm. better. And uh, we can aim for, uh, you know, maybe some sort of publicity stunt where an actual certified flight instructor, you know, sits (laughs) in the cockpit and is informed of what the autopilot is thinking and doing, and Mm -hmm. then, um, uh, you know, gives it full marks. Because the other side is that, to get this full autonomy adopted, and we can talk about why it's needed at all uh, later. But to uh, to get it adopted, a requirement is that people trust it, because you know otherwise you're not going to trust your life Because mm-hmm. flying is fundamentally uh, more dangerous than driving because you have mm-hmm. this you know this altitude component, and this gravity term in the uh, in your energy that you have to deal with. So we thought this would be one way of addressing the uh, the issue of trust
0: and at the dalian what exact uh, technologies are you developing at your company
1: we figured that uh, since humans typically learn to fly and start to fly in visual conditions under the mm-hmm. visual flight rules there's two sets of the uh, rules rules in the air um depending on where and when you fly and what conditions there are the visual flight rules and the instrument flight rules the instrument flight rule sounds more like you know robots and computers, but in reality, it re- revolves around two humans, one in the cockpit and one on the ground, mm-hmm. um, coordinating over a voice channel so that nobody flies into each other. So we figured that the simpler environment in which to start, and one that requires fewer uh, dependencies and changes in the environment, is to, to learn to fly in visual flight rules, which you do in the visual meteorological conditions, for which you need eyes. So what we have developed as the first set of instruments is um, computer vision, a suite mm-hmm. of computer vision-based instruments. They take high-definition camera inputs, um, and they figure out where you are, where you can fly, and where you can land. So where you are is navigation. Uh, if you don't know where you are, you cannot control flights. You cannot. You, you can't get to B if you don't know where you are and where B is. Mm-hmm then the, the second suite of uh, functions is where can you fly? That's the techno void. So in right. visual flight rules, it's a legal requirement that you deconflict. Uh, that means don't fly into others mm-hmm. on, on visual information only because not everything might show up on a radar. So for this, we have uh, an instrument that can you know, look at all the megapixels at once and mm-hmm. figure out things that look like aircraft and get slightly bigger over time that's the dangerous one for a collision is the ones that don't seem to move but just grow a little uh, and then the third uh, component is uh, safe landing guidance which in okay. visual conditions you're also doing with your eyes so humans routinely land on anything that looks like a runway right. but uh, compute completely automated landing uh, requires an uh, instant landing system that has you know, millions of dollars worth of equipment on the ground okay. and a very expensive equipment on board and there's only 65 airports in the world that have that anyway. So we figured if we can do these three things on visual, then we can, um, you know, make a credible case that you can fly autonomously in VFR, in VMC from A to B, and we can take it from there. And that already requires a whole new category of avionics um, using, uh, you know, what's, what's commonly known as AI. We, we try to mm-hmm. stay away from that term a bit because artificial intelligence is a um, a moving uh, definition. Yes. Like, so, what was artificial intelligence in 1950 is completely trivial uh, now. But uh, machine learning is a class of systems that use computer programs to design other computer programs. It's a fairly recent technique, or it has recently become feasible to solve types of problems that hitherto were outside the realm of solvable by machines. And they involve judgment calls of the type where you, know, you look out the window and you see if the runway is clear or not. Or you look at the window and you see if this little blob actually is a plane or yeah. if it's a big rock in the Grand Canyon that, <clears throat> that looks like a plane. Mm. So safety judgments that are currently exclusively the domain of the UN pilot, we have to deal with. To take a step back... Right. Any robot that wants to uh, function autonomously, uh, the mm-hmm. guy who uh, kicked off the Google self-driving Car Project, he wrote a very good book about robotics, and yeah. um, he makes the convincing point that because there's uncertainty in the environment, a robot has to be able to deal with uncertainty. Yep. And if you look at the way avionics and uh, aerospace in general works, it tries yeah. to engineer all uncertainty away, and the residual uncertainty is entirely delegated to the human Who's supposed to make the right judgment calls?
0: Yeah, that's right. You, as a pilot,
1: you, you can testify to that.
0: Well, the, even Airbus says in the book, it says if you if you do not understand what's going on, take over. That's one of their golden rules. They have four of them, and that's one of them. Um, mm-hmm. And actually, three of them are about automation, and the and, uh-huh. uh, and, and the last one, well, the first one, is it just about general airmanship? And so uh, it's funny how such a large proportion of The most important things to remember is how to handle the automation, how to make sure you're aware of it and how to uh, deal with it when it doesn't know how to deal with the situation itself. Right. And you're trying to basically go, when there's uncertainty, the automation goes, computer says no, human has it. And then you're taking with these incredibly powerful machine learned systems, okay, now, now the system still has control kind of thing. Right, um, because, but, you know,
1: we want to take the human out, but only if we can provably do it better. So, you know, yes. I think it's, it's a very bad idea to sort of force this on the world and the industry and the people and the public if it's not yes. actually ready. So what's a very good thing in aviation is this uh, certification and the, the regulator who approves that things are safe, which was totally necessary because in the 1950s of the, of the previous century, you know, the sky was a bit of a wild west. And then there was uh, a mid-air collision over the Grand Canyon that mm-hmm. uh, caused the United States government to install the FAA. And they started you know, looking at all the dangers and started writing down rules of how to avoid them. So slowly that became quite a powerful apparatus. So you can look at this as a massive bureaucracy and a hurdle that you have to take. Or you can look at it as the public delegated the function of checking uh, safety of life and goods, which is uh, guaranteed in the human a Convention of Human Rights, 1949. So you know, an aspect of that is delegated to, uh, through your government to some authority who checks that crazy people that want to fly things over your head uh, don't end up killing you.
0: Can I just pause there and circle back to um, what interesting aspect? Now, you decided to pursue the VFR world before the IFR mm-hmm. world. Now, many people would say IFR is far much easier to automate it's all the instruments are there the, the computer understands what's going on all the time. Cause you don't have to develop computer vision. You don't have to develop anything. It's just instruments all the way except for takeoff. But at the same time, you're so much more interconnected with the wider aviation system in IFR. Whereas in VFR, you can be your own free agent and take off uh, cruise and land and no one ever knew about it. Right. Is that the primary reason that you went after VFR first or is it because it's a bigger market?
1: No, it, it's. I think the IFR is the bigger market, but it's it's harder to start there. So you know, if you if you know somebody gave me a billion to start with, I might have started on the other side. But uh, I started with a much much smaller capital, and you want to first prove that you can solve these type of problems. And for that, DFR is a better playground, and there's already a market. There's already safety margin, and the IFR system is quite a lot more complicated because uh, the person on the ground looks at a radar you know there's a whole mm-hmm. network of radar stations on the ground and then there's a human on the ground who talks over a voice channel to uh pilots so formally the last word is for the pilot on board but mm-hmm. you know if you can't see and you have limited instruments then there's there's not not a lot you can do the mitigation for contingencies is also much more complicated so you have a higher safety bar and then if right. something happens you're immediately in much deeper trouble <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so so it, it's a it's a harder place to start for various reasons where if we, if we can show right. that we can you know safely and reliably do the thing that requires eyes and we can make judgment calls in vision then we can add radar and infrared later and we can add uh, utm or new forms of air traffic control that are more automated later so when we started i did some research and i found that. Uh, talk about completely automating air traffic control has mm-hmm. been a topic since the early 1980s. <laughs> and at some yeah. point in the 1980s, IBM got $6 billion to do something about this. And the result right. of that is that there's a tape which tells you what the weather is, and it says a number. And then the tower asks you what the number was of the tape you last listened to. And if it's a lower number, you have to go back and listen to the tape
0: again. So wait, hang on. IBM was given $6 billion to make a digital ATIS. Yes,
1: and what they ended up with is the meter tape that you can
0: call. It's not even native. It's a meta. Okay, right. That's it. That's it. Sounds absurd. But luckily, we're in the year 2021 now.
1: Yes, where everything is so much better. Except, except uh, you know, talk about automating the voice link is still uh, you know quite a ways away. So there's optional yeah. protocols that you can have, but yes. um so. We um, think actually we could solve the problem of the voice interaction between the ATC and the pilot. Okay. But uh, why start there, right? Yep. So if you, yep. uh, so there's there's a lot of pieces of the puzzle, and you have to find the point the path of least resistance because otherwise you get this uh, typical situation is you work in some large big corp. Dot, dot mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, they have this new computer system and they're going to roll it out next Monday morning at 8 o'clock where they switch off the old computer system and switch on the new computer system and then 6,000 people can't work for um, a week because mm. uh, something breaks and so these big, massive changes that require that everybody changes at the same time are mm. impossible to roll out and this system of rules of the air you know, there's international conventions yep. uh, that nail that down and they, they change on time scales of decades Yes. Um, so, so if you want to do mm, sorry
0: um, And now it really makes it clear. So you chose VFR first and you chose computer vision first because there's not this massive interconnected web of things that you have to change at the same time. And Mm -hmm. and at the same time, vision is central to the aviation system because the human is Mm – and the human uses vision all the time. And so you can use this tool of computer vision to transform an an incredibly essential and powerful part of the aviation system – without having to change everything else at the same time, you can still get a, a, right. a useful product at the end of it. So what are you applying your technology to first?
1: Uh, so our our motivating use case was I actually started the company because there were a lot of uh, uh, these electric vehicle uh, projects mm-hmm. became public. Um, so that by now, there's more than 200. At the time, there were I don't know, 40 or so. I when I started looking at them and I thought, okay, they need to be fully autonomous. Otherwise, their business model is not going to work. Yes. Um, And not only economically, but also. So to get back to the VFR and IFR rules, the IFR works because everybody stays in their own 20 cubic nautical miles. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the air traffic controller can only make sure nobody flies into each other if everybody stays sufficiently far away. Under these rules, Mm -hmm. you can have one air taxi over London. If you go to VFR, you can maybe get to 5 or 10, but then it's everybody's individual responsibility not to fly to everyone else. And if the density gets too high, that those probabilities get, get too low also. When the motivating goal was the air taxi, um, it's uh, they don't exist yet. So it's very yes. hard to make the case to investors that you're going to be wildly profitable <laughs> if your primary customers don't actually exist yet. Sure. <laughs> that's, uh, that, that's a large leap of faith. Uh, fortunately, in the meantime, we discovered that there's already a lot of headroom in aviation today so first Mm -hmm. of all in this uh, general aviation vfr regime uh, things are not as safe as in the commercial air transport sector so you know the large airliners are truly very safe and it's a success story of the regulation and of the rules of the air and of the uh the certification of avionics and all the components 2019, no accidents, or was it 2018? And then the two, but they were correlated. So that's truly a success story. But in anything smaller than 19 seats, the probability of a fatal accident is roughly the same as uh, per hour is roughly the same as riding a motorcycle. Right. So uh, there's a lot of headroom. And it's logical because all systems get better by the collective engineering of mankind and the competition in the market to make better instruments, but not the human. Uh-huh. Uh, so as long as the human is central in the loop, in the control loop, the low-level control loop, inevitably, uh, he or she ends up being the weakest link. So inevitably, the dominant uh, modes of uh, accidents are controlled flight into terrain, uh, mid-air collision, loss of control, VFR and 2 MC. Mm-hmm. These these things are all operator errors. And now there's a quote from uh, one of my favorite uh, engineers, uh, Nancy Levison, Professor Levison, at, uh, I think she's at MIT. So, that operator error is evidence of a badly designed system.
0: What I'm hearing, hearing that you're saying, Luke, is that the small aircraft market is comparatively extremely unsafe. And therefore, you've decided to apply your technology to the VFR market, which is small. So, uh, the small aircraft market as well, generally speaking. Yes. And it has a higher fatality rate. And there yes. are some applications that I believe you're rolling out this year. Uh, or you have also last year. Where are you up to with those other applications? Pilot assistance
1: first. So for pilot assistance, we can help the pilot land. We can help them see uh, and avoid, and we can even help them navigate.
0: So kind of like what Garmin is doing. They've got their their Cirrus does an auto land. Okay. Yeah. I'm guessing they use GPS because Garmin makes GPSs.
1: Yes, Garmin is very good at GPS. Strictly better than a dead pilot. So if the pilot is dead this system is better. What you don't yet have is a system that's clearly better than a live pilot. So well, okay. ideally, the goal would be to come to a system where you have a button that says, I'm the pilot, I'm alive and well. I would like to do a manual landing today because the weather is nice, the winds are good, and I bought this plane for a reason, right. and then the computer says, sure, I'll let you fly. And it lets you fly like I let my six-year-old daughter drive you know, on my lap in my car <laughs> okay. and, you know, with her hands in the steer, and the computer keeps an eye on you to make sure you don't accidentally control a flight into terrain or right. do other silly things. Uh, so for okay. that, you actually have to make a system that is clearly better than the pilot, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. DPS fundamentally cannot be because it depends on radio waves that can be switched off by uh, people that control the satellites or people that, you know, um, radiate uh, powerful enough stuff in your in your mm-hmm. environment. And then vision mm-hmm. is a lot more reliable because it's a lot harder to fool that's why people get upset when people shine laser pointers on airplanes.
0: So, right now, you're developing pilot assistance systems uh, right. for automatic landing. I also see uh, landing area selection.
1: Yes, emergency landing and regular landing, uh, fixed wing and vertical. So, helicopters and the new EVTOLs, uh, we can assist land in planned places where you also right. want to make first, you want to find them and uh-huh. uh, we'll see what, where, where you're expecting them. You want to see that they're clear. So that's that's the type of judgment call that clearly is now exclusively the domain of human pilots. You know, is there is is the landing? Is there an incursion? You know, is there something running over the runway? Should I embark or not? Um, Mm. In emergency landing uh, for a helicopter, you have you know on average ten to fifteen seconds to decide where you autorotate to. Yeah, autorotate. Very polite way of saying (laughs) fall. Yes. (laughs) If you have a system that has the plan ready for you in the eventuality that happens the next millisecond, you can save a couple of seconds. You could even, you know, conceivably out-rotate to, if you if you can prove that you can out-rotate to a better choice uh, mm-hmm. without a human, uh, then you know, I think that would be a clear win for safety in
0: helicopters. So it's continuously scanning the ground and then as soon as it detects an engine failure i don't know a screen pops up in front of you or something and it goes land there and you're like okay, well, you can you do land there.
1: if it's for pilot assistance you could think of quarter assistance so the pilot you know in his ear you know gets the hint to look over his left or right shoulder you know in a further stage you could actually connect to the controls but you have to realize there's currently no helicopter that's even allowed to do outlanding so a big boeing or airbus has ils there's no equivalent allowed system that lets the helicopter land. All helicopter landings, there's a decision height at which it has to be visual. Right. So that's already a function. So it's
0: still a pilot assistance. Uh,
1: so we start with pilot assistance, but then you know it's it's obvious you wanna you are making simplified operations possible. You could get mm-hmm. rid of a second crew member if you can prove mm-hmm. that that's safer. And then uh, finally, you could if you have a system where it's clearly safer if the human doesn't touch anything. Uh, you have met the bar. You, should, you should do this in the right order. You should first prove that it's safe before mm-hmm. you uh, let it happen, and then obviously, you know, all the pilot and ATC unions are going to protest. Yes, but uh, that always happens.
0: <laughs> so, mentioned that. Okay, so you have pilot assistance first. You prove it's, and then you prove you prove it's better than. A pilot and then you mm-hmm. can move up to actually doing the flight uh, then you right. can sort of take some more redundancy away because you in another pilot because you have essentially an autopilot yeah, yeah. that's powerful as powerful as a human brain not in that sense and mm-hmm. um and then where, where are you going to go after that Do you, are you chasing after the fully autonomous air transportation market
1: so I do think the urban air mobility will take off at some point. There's currently you know, the total amount of sales in of all aircraft built in the world in a given year is 3,500, uh, which, you know, if you compare it to 80 million cars, is, is zero. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> first order of approximation, there's no market for avionics. The, uh, the aftermarket is rather large, uh, but urban air mobility, you know, even if somebody starts to produce 50,000 uh, helicopters or betas or whisks, 50,000 is an insane amount of airplanes. And then Mm -hmm. if you get to uh, 100 of them buzzing over London or Munich, it already requires that the human pilot is not in charge of deconflicting. I I thought, well, everybody's starting to build their electric flying cars. You know, that's a a very specific skill set to convince Mother nature that this thing should be airborne and then to convince the FAA that it's actually safe. That's a completely different skill set than making uh, computer vision and deep learning work. And at the same time, the computer vision and deep learning people are basically unaware of what it means to prove that something is safe to the FAA. And indeed, a whole part of how to build that argument was missing, because the way avionics works today is, uh, and avionics is made today and software is made, is completely different than machine learning systems. So we had to uh, help fill in that gap. And we can't just plaster over it and you know get a pass, because the first thing that goes wrong uh, people will rightfully ask, to, why did you let that happen? Why is this unsafe system allowed to control an aircraft? So you have to be better in every way.
0: I just want to say something for our listeners. If you would like to know more about the deep learning, machine learning, uh, artificial intelligence overview of AI I did a a first podcast. Luke here is deeply involved, finally, in deep learning and in machine learning. And this is something that the aviation world hasn't really had to intersect with before. And a a characteristic of those systems is that there are some cases where you don't necessarily know exactly what the outcome will be given a set of inputs. Um, And that's the common conception today. So, Luke, you have done a significant amount of work with EASA on how do we put these in these incredibly safety critical systems uh these deep learned neural networks could you just explain mm-hmm. your work on that
1: so maybe it helps to first sketch how it's done for traditional uh, avionics sure. with the hardened software and then what the contrast is with uh, these new systems so in traditional avionics you have you first write down what your aircraft is supposed to do and what the functions right. are, and then you allocate some functions to these systems, and you write down very detailed what the systems are supposed to do, and you do a safety analysis, how you know how reliable uh, it should be, and um, then at some point you have uh, a computer and some software that goes on it, and you write down again very precisely what it's supposed to do, and then you have a budget. So this is this safety critical; it should really not fail more than once in 10 to the 7 hours of flight, 10, mm-hmm. 10 million hours, and therefore. We're going to follow this amount of extra process to make sure that we really, 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 really checked it's correct. Um yes. that's called the design assurance. And then you do that extra work and it's good. I mean, it's it's part of professional programming that you write down what it does and you test it. But there's fundamentally it's very hard to predict uh the occurrence of bugs. Yeah. The statistics of the occurrence of bugs in, in traditional software is for a very fundamental reason incredibly hard to predict. So, you make this thing perfect and bug-free in the lab, and you make sure you can find no mistake in this, and then you assume it's good enough to put it out there, and then uh, you keep your fingers crossed that it fails less than 10 to seven hours of flight. <laughs> At the same time, you know that this is not true, so you actually mm. mitigate for failure in the system in your fault analysis, you actually assume that this thing fails, and you make sure you can, you can
0: deal with that. So because in classical software, there's no way of really knowing where all the bugs are. Uh, exactly. You can fly this thing for a million hours and then on a million and one hour, you find a bug, right. right? And so you have to design that piece of software out of the system and assume it's going to fail and your aircraft is still going to be okay.
1: Right. Uh, so that, that's one way of mitigating that. And at the same time, this amount of extra process that you do, there is no logical connection between that amount of extra work and just basically, you know, redoing and checking and checking again, and the and the expected failure rate. That's actually the crux of the uh, uh, report we produced with Yeah.
0: The crux of your engagement was to fi- find a way, a framework to follow, whereby you train your model so it sufficiently generalizes across uh, the real world effectively enough, and right. and at the same time in a traceable way right uh so that the regulators can have oversight right. and also at the same time did did you discuss the system that that specific uh, machine learned algorithm would sit in like you said it could take a bunch of pictures over 5 seconds and it can each time have a 96 97% confidence interval that that thing is a runway kind of like a human they see it from far away I think that's the runway. You get closer. Yep, yep. Okay, that is the runway. And that's exactly how your system works. And that's what you were alluding to before. Right.
1: That's my heuristic of why I think it's possible. So if I can get something that's, you know, as good as a human in recognizing a Mm -hmm. runway, which is, you know, 96%, then, you know, humans can safely land and routinely land safely all the time. So it, it tells me there should be a way to use this, you know, this noisy bit of information and build a system that's more, more safe. And it turns out there is by looking at this time series. There's some caveats, you know, the li- little furry animals with the rodents. And <laughs> so if you take, if you go from frame to frame, uh, mm-hmm. the probability that you make the same mistake is actually fairly high. So you have to wait long enough mm-hmm. to get a truly independent roll of the die to have your ninety six percent,
0: and I'm guessing you're looking at a bunch of different um, parameters here. Like the the other day, I was flying and um, I saw the runway. I'm like, I mean, me and my co-pilot were both just thinking, that looks that we, we're really high. I don't really understand what's going on. We're having a look at our instruments. The runway shouldn't be there, but it's kind of should be there. And then we realized it was the the nearby military airport that wasn't on any of the charts. It's just the ni- and so then we kept going. We landed on the right runway. But I suppose your system as well will take all these inputs: altitude, distance. Yes time everything and then it has a much much higher chance of finding the runway it's not like like we said before it's not this sentient being that's always looking for a runway to land on and wants to land on them
1: our thinking has really ripened so the way i present it now you know we didn't have that complete picture yet so it was a very good cooperation we approached and said you know we think uh we need to work on certifiability of this system because it's a problem that needs to be solved you know it can only be solved with this machine learning components how about we talk about what your concerns were and what was really good is that they brought basically the table of contents and the vocabulary, so they, the the list of things they 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 worried about, you know, for good reason, and uh, the words in which to describe them. Because there's a if you, yeah, totally different cultures, mathematical, machine learning, academic versus you know day to day safety of airplanes. So and we I know this is the first time when we met. I used the word random. Turns out it means a complete difference in safety critical avionics. And safety engineering, as in the uh, then in um, uh, machine learning. So in uh, so that we had this whole confusion for 15 minutes before we. What are you talking about now? What are you talking about? So before we nailed it down to no, that's not what random means. Okay, well it's a very fundamental concept in math, but it's only a very fundamental concept for them. So they brought the the words which we learned and the list of concerns, and we brought our expertise on. Uh, no, no, this is not what you have to worry about, or this is easily fixed. For example well, these systems are adaptive and non-deterministic. So that's actually not true. So they're only adaptive, meaning they change in flight if you change them in flight. You can simply fix that by not changing them in flight. It would be very bad if the system would learn online while flying, pick up all kinds of bad habits, you know, and would sit in the bar late at night saying, you know, I did something terrible while I flew, uh, Frank. And, uh, you know, that's how human pilots build up uh, their experience.
0: That's a fundamental difference between Netflix's recommendation engine, which is a very powerful uh, artificial intelligence system, or inverted commas, very powerful, and it learns on the fly, right? Whereas uh, your computer vision system to guide an airplane to land is trained on a bunch of data, and then it's frozen, then it's put in the aircraft. And that's a very different – that's not an adaptive system. It's not. Yeah, yes.
1: most people who land on this runway later also want to land on that runway. That's yeah. very nice, but I don't actually care. And um, so you have to ins- you have to isolate the, the machine learned and the artificial intelligence function to the smallest thing that you can get away with, that you, that you really need it for. And, you know, it's not this this magic solution where you glue a camera mm. to control surfaces and it learns to like landing and, you know, it picks up these habits. Same with determinism. You hear that a lot. So, so, given the systems we design, if you give them pixel for pixel the same input, they give bit for bit the same output. So in that sense, they're completely deterministic. But there's a lot of uncertainty in the environment. So what people mm-hmm. confuse is the they misattribute the randomness, the the residual uncertainty in the environment, with uncertainty about how the system operates. But this is yeah, exactly okay. the uncertainty that is currently delegated to the human, who is allowed mm-hmm. to improvise, um, and can be creative. But you know, for everyone who lands heroically on the Hudson there's someone who flies controlled into terrain so uh, we should you know we should gather data and objectively evaluate these things.
0: Mm, interesting. So Luke, where where are you now in that process and what challenges do you have to overcome to see EASA certifying something like this?
1: So we found a very willing ear in uh, both FAA and EASA. Um, for our ideas and, you know, we feel that we are being taken seriously and uh, and, and studied. EASA has on the roadmap to come out with initial form of uh, guidance on these systems in the course of the next year. Uh, we hope to contribute to the discussion and be the first test case. So there, actually all I need is time. So it just needs some time to finish projects and prove things, but I see no fundamental... Obstacles. What turns out to be uh, an interesting practical obstacle is because nobody had to do supercomputing on an airborne computer before. Uh, The fastest computer you can get to design assurance level A are uh, 100 megahertz, 8-bit, super reliable computers. So if you show up with the thing that wants to push uh, megapixels through it, uh, then you're out of luck. So we were very lucky to find a partner who's willing to make uh, sufficiently powerful boxes that we can run our stuff on because uh, right. in principle my laptop would be powerful enough but my laptop you know frequently spontaneously reboots because it gets too hot and mm-hmm. uh, so that's exactly the difference between internet cowboys and people making safety critical software hardware. or my bluetooth headphones will make my phone yes. crash
0: you see that is the, the main obstacle hardware right now and there's no real engineering or fundamental issues that you still haven't cracked yet you think it's just a matter of time and
1: Another interesting one is getting the data back. So while we don't learn in flight, we do want all the data back so that we can pool all the experience and uh, learn to get better.
0: Like what Tesla does?
1: Like the Tesla does, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, okay. exactly like Tesla does. So for that, we're going to need some more bandwidth. That's currently something we're worrying an engineer about. Then uh, in terms of public acceptance, we think it's also, it's a matter of time, it's rolling it out as pilot assistance, you know, proving that it works, making people go, wow, you know, if I'm not entirely sure, I leave my hands to stick, this thing land itself. And uh, it's all, all these planes that I was supposed to see that I didn't see, you know, I think that will raise a whole generation of uh, pilots who are mm-hmm. confident that yes, these machines are safe and safer than they are left to their own devices
0: funnily enough it sounds like the exact thing that all of the eVTOL companies are talking about they're saying there's going to we'll have to you know get a full on helicopter aeroplane license first but after the first year we'll have sorted out this new type rating system yeah. highly automated and how's that going to happen well highly automated pilot assistance systems by the sounds of it
1: uh, yes, you have to roll this out as incremental steps of uh, autonomy. So you always say, oh, don't planes already fly themselves? And it's true in cruise, you know, it's pretty boring to fly mm-hmm. an airliner, I would imagine. Uh, but then the takeoff yeah. and landing are deliberately very manual for no good engineering reason, largely acceptance reasons. So we need to, to work on the acceptance and also expect some pushback from people who think that they are irreplaceable in my machines, uh, such as your colleagues, no doubt. Uh, believe. Because this happens in all industries. And so I happen to believe that unless empathy is part of your job description, meaning you're a nurse or someone who cares about people, unless that is the case, you, your job could probably be done better by a machine.
0: Thank you so much, uh, Luke, for an hour of your time and having a chat. Really, really enjoyed it. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of Deep Sky. I hope you have enjoyed our conversation with Luke To find out more about what Luke is building, the link to his website is in the show notes. Also is a link to further information on his collaboration with IASA. If you have any questions about the future of AI in aviation, or would like to have a chat about how AI may impact your business or career in the future, then please send me an email at samuel.chandra01 at gmail.com. The email address will be in the show notes. Please do come back next week for another engaging conversation. This is Deep Sky.